been. In the name of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. So today we have in our scripture readings some very powerful miracles, both of Elijah and Jesus. And then we have a, very, uh, a description of a very dramatic event that Paul takes part in. So that reading from the first book of Kings, chapter 17, verses 8 to 24, we see Elijah perform two miracles. First of all, a feeding miracle, because he's gone up to Ahab, who worships Baal, and Elijah, at the beginning of the first book of Kings, says to Ahab the king, no rain is going to fall in this place until I say. The local people understood that Baal was the god of fertility and storms. So when Elijah says there's no rain going to fall until I tell it to, he's really saying that Baal, whom you worship, is no god at all. But the drought that follows is probably what puts the widow at Zarephath in such desperate straits that when Elijah meets her in the gate of the city, she is going to prepare the last meal for herself and her household. So she's going to cook the little bit of food that she has left and then she expects that they will all starve. And you know the rest of the story. Elijah miraculously makes her jar of flour and her jug of oil last until the drought is over. Now, when we hear that feeding miracle, it puts us in mind of the feeding miracles of Jesus. I suppose especially things like the feeding of the 5,000, which happens on a large scale rather than in a private household. But you read in the book of Kings that the widow and her household and Elijah eat from that jar of meal and that jug of oil many times until the rain falls. So they do it again and again and again. It's truly miraculous. And then you've got the unfortunate circumstance that the widow's son dies. And the widow, quite rightly, says to Elijah, What's happening here? I've allowed you to eat in my household. You miraculously blessed my household and now my son dies. And so Elijah goes into the upper chamber and he stretches himself upon the body of the child and he prays and the child is miraculously restored to life. And these two readings that we receive today, the first book of Kings reading, chapter 17, and the reading from Luke, chapter 7, verses 1 to 11, bounce off each other. So when Jesus heals the widow's son at Nain, we think back to the Elijah story. So we think feeding miracle, we see Elijah do a feeding miracle, we think of the feeding miracles of Jesus. We hear of Jesus raising the widow's son, And we think back to the miraculous events that take place surrounding the prophet Elijah and how he raises the widow's son. And these two events reflect each other. So in both cases, 
both Elijah and Jesus meet the widow at the gate of the city. And when Jesus raises the son, who's a young man, of the widow at Nain, he says, he takes the young man and he gives him to his mother. Just as Elijah comes downstairs carrying the restored son and gives him to his mother. So even the words of scripture make these miracles reflect each other. And it's a reminder to us of the power and the compassion of the one we serve. So Jesus, when he meets the widow at Nain, she doesn't ask anything of him at all. She doesn't say, my son's dead, please do something. He comes upon a funeral procession, has compassion on her, and restores the young man to life. And his compassion is not just for the grief that she suffers, but also for the desperate situation that she's in as a widow, the mother whose only son has just died, with no other means of support. Jesus reaches into her situation and brings life. Three very miraculous events. And then we have the reading from Galatians. And here again, there's a great sense of irony. We get a priceless first-hand account by Paul of his own conversion and how he was a persecutor of the church of God. And in this letter in which he defends his position trenchantly, he offers a summary of how he came to be doing what he's doing. And we stand amazed that God turns the biggest persecutor of the church into its biggest proponent and defender. So it's not just that Paul becomes a believer. He becomes the one who is responsible for the spread of the gospel throughout the known world. And more than that, his letters, which are written for a particular time, a particular situation in a particular community, sometimes a very unenviable situation, have become documents that inspire and educate the entire church. So he's banging out angry answers. They don't have emails, but he's writing angry answers against his opponents in Galatia, who say that he's not teaching the gospel correctly. And that's why we get all those references to, I didn't learn this from human beings. I learned this from God. That sounds a bit strange when he says, I didn't receive this from human beings, as though he's come to this untutored. But he's wanting to say, I didn't make this up. His opponents are saying that of him. They're saying, you are not getting your new converts to follow the Jewish law. And that means you're not teaching properly. The gospel that you're bringing forth is suspect. And the letter to the Galatians is an answer to that. I received a revelation from God. I was a persecutor of the church and God revealed himself to me in this powerful way. So the very conversion of Paul is a miracle a profound miracle. 
that the one who should oppose Christ is the one who ensures the spread of his word, not just among the Jewish community, but throughout, throughout the world. And we are inheritors of that movement. But more than this, as Paul is writing angry letters, his harsh words for his opponents are accompanied by good news for the churches. And he develops the idea of justification by faith alone. He develops it specifically because he's facing people who are saying, unless you make your converts abide by the Jewish law, They're actually not proper. They're not proper Christians. And Paul develops the idea of justification by faith, by believing in the power of Jesus Christ to save, to forgive sins. And so he writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. An argument over opposition that Paul faces is something that has become a cornerstone of our understanding and our faith to this very day. See how powerful God's action is in the world. See how the word of God goes forward. Jesus is obedient to God. Elijah is obedient to God and is wonderfully empowered. He performs miracles, both of feeding and of raising the dead. Jesus, the divine son, does all the things that Elijah does, except that he does them on a bigger scale. And he seems to do them with much less effort. So Elijah prays fervently for the child that he raises from death. Jesus just reaches out and touches the beer and says, arise, and the man pops up. But Paul, who by his own account opposes God, is overpowered by God, and then when opposed himself, uses the occasion of that opposition to write and teach in ways that empower the church of God down to this very moment. Everything that happens is used by God. Everything that takes place in these accounts is used by God. And it seems as though whether people are obedient or disobedient, whether they are attentive to or neglectful of the message, the word of God and the action of God goes forward. And we really shouldn't be surprised. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, which means that whatever we see on our screens or whatever we read in our media, day by day, the kingdom comes closer because God wills it. I've always believed that one of the most powerful arguments for the reality of Jesus' resurrection is the behaviour of his disciples. Both in the years after his resurrection... And at a longer distance to this very hour. You may know the stats. There are 2.2 billion Christians in the world. There are only 24 million people in Australia. 
So there are about 96.1 times as many Christians in the world as there are people in Australia. That's without adding the number of people in Australia who are Christians. It's a huge number. And this morning, we are all at worship in spite of all the grave predictions of the death of institutions and religious observance. So here too, the power of the word of God is going forth. What might the God that we worship, the God who sent Jesus into the world for the salvation of the world, the God who raised Jesus from death for the salvation of all, what might that God who empowered Elijah and Jesus and Paul and the earliest disciples empower in us? What part of that can we imagine? And what part is unimagined by us but is waiting to happen if we remain open to the action of the Holy Spirit. These scripture readings that we hear today show us that nothing is going to get in the way of God's purpose. Not the worship of false gods like Baal, not human mortality, not the political powers of the world that tried to kill Jesus, not opponents of the gospel, like the young Paul, nor disputes within the church, which not only fail to silence Paul, but which turn his anger into doctrine. You and I ourselves are part of God's purpose for the world, and our God has both power and compassion. May we pursue our way in that purpose with faithfulness and with courage. The Lord be with you.